Hello, I'm Raul Fontenelle, this is The Schwepp, and today we are speaking with Professor Aaron Repman of Trinity Christian College in Palos Heights, Illinois, a man who knows a thing or two about one of the most fascinating esoteric thinkers of antiquity, Origin of Alexandria. Aaron, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us. My great pleasure to be with you. I've been looking forward to this very much because Origin is an absolutely fascinating character, um, plays a pivotal and very multifaceted role in the history of Christianity and the, also the history of esoteric philosophy and late antique thought more generally. And you are the perfect man to introduce this figure to us and get into some of the fascinating, surprising, seeming contradictions of his thought, but that mm. somehow work together in some way. But before we dive into the the fascinating craziness, I wonder if you could introduce Origen, his historical background um, the basics of his life, the basic potted biography. Yes, gladly. So Origen, uh, like several of the other figures that uh, that you've addressed, hails from the great Hellenic city of Alexandria in northern Egypt and is carrying on uh, much of the tradition of Philo and others uh, that has already been established there. Uh, Origen was, was born around the year 185 CE, uh, seemingly to a Christian family. Uh, his his uh, father seems to have taken his education in hand, uh, given him a good founding in uh, grammar and the literature of, of uh, classical antiquity. Uh, in terms of the specifics of his education, um, we don't have a lot of very good details of uh, with whom... Um, how else he might have gotten some of those elements. And we'll talk a little bit later on about a particularly uh, vexed question of his education that intersects with uh, with the esotericist tradition. Um, the story has it that uh, Origen's father was martyred, was killed uh, by representatives of the Roman Empire uh, when Origen was uh, in his middle teen years, when he was uh, not yet uh, an adult. And Origen was keen to join him in this martyrdom, uh, but his mother prevented it by uh, hiding his clothes so that he couldn't go out. Uh, apparently, Origen was, among other things, modest enough to not go out and seek his martyr's crown while not wearing anything else. So, so he'll um, die with perfect ease, but he will not be seen naked in public. Exactly. Exactly. So she, she spared him uh, in that way. But then he was left um, without a father and with several younger siblings and uh, seems to have then taken up the work of teaching when he was uh, somewhere around 18 years old. Some of that teaching uh, seems to have been uh, working as a grammarian, providing basic uh, literary education for younger people, and then also that he was engaged in some fashion by the local church to be uh, uh, working in catechesis, the teaching of basics of the Christian faith. Now, there's there's a lot of dispute about what exactly the arrangements of that catechesis were. 
uh, you'll find especially a lot of older sources that say there was a fully established catechetical school that was earlier headed up by uh, his predecessor Clement of Alexandria and that there was a sort of full-fledged educational institutional expression going on. More recent scholarship has called that into question somewhat and suggested that it might have been a much more informal arrangement um, that Origen was recognized by the local bishop, uh, the pastor of the of the church, and was a recommended teacher, uh, but not necessarily the head of something that would have said catechetical school of Alexandria over the doorpost. Right. Um, at some point, again, as the story goes, uh, and our, our best source for the whole life of Origen is uh, Eusebius, who I think you've talked about in previous episodes, yep. um, Eusebius of Caesarea, uh, who writes in his Ecclesiastical History. The first half of Book 6 of the Ecclesiastical History is devoted largely to telling the story of Origen. And according to Eusebius, uh, at a certain point, Origen... Um, got even more serious about some of his higher level studies and about some of the students who had come to him that were capable of higher level things beyond basic instruction in Christian faith. And so he seems to have then engaged uh, a younger assistant uh, to take over the basic level things while he could uh, engage in higher level instruction with those um, who were ready for that. He took some journeys along the way. Um, he was sent on some journeys throughout other places in the ancient uh, uh, Near East and the Mediterranean, including a journey to Rome. Uh, and so as early as, uh, I think, 312 or 313, he makes his first journey to Palestine, uh, to Caesarea, and, uh, and does some teaching there, which starts to get him in trouble. Um, he's, he's not yet unwelcome in Alexandria where he came from, but as, as a non-ordained person, right, as a, not a priest, he is found in Caesarea teaching about the Bible to an audience that includes priests and bishops. And there is some controversy about this back home that his bishop says, uh, this isn't, this isn't appropriate. You shouldn't be doing this. Mm -hmm. So he's sort of recalled back to Alexandria. Uh, later on, things get even dicier in his uh, hometown of Alexandria, and he's no longer welcome there. And so around 232, I think, he once again decamps to, to Caesarea in Palestine, which then becomes his permanent address. And then he is officially ordained a priest, which so, gets him in even more trouble with his bishop back home, because you're not supposed to be able to do that away from home. Oh, I see. So he's... To interrupt here, is he? Yes. The the impression I'm getting is he's this sort of extremely brilliant, extremely driven Christian philosopher, quite young yes. at this stage. Yes. And he's just being held back by the institutional hierarchy of the church, and and he just wants to go and he wants to get into the philosophy and get into scripture and and teach it, and he keeps being told like pump the brakes, Origin, you're mm. you're just a you're just some young schmo, and we're the bishops and we're the the official guys who are allowed to do this sort of thing, you need to stop. Is that basically right. the thing? That's at least one line of interpretation, right. yeah. And and the the church hierarchy in Palestine seems to be quite eager to receive his teaching and not at all bothered by his status. Uh, 
but it's Demetrius, the bishop back home in Alexandria, who's exercised about um, the, the impropriety of this sort of thing. Hmm. You were talking about the kind of brilliant work that he's doing. Maybe we could briefly outline uh, the different kinds of things that he's known for writing. Fantastic idea. Uh, yeah. So we could say that Origen is remembered for roughly three or four different kinds of writing. One of them uh, is um, his work in textual criticism of uh, the Older Testament of the Bible. Remember, he's working in Alexandria, which is home to all of this um, finely tuned work of uh, textual criticism and manuscript study and that sort of thing. And Origen seems to have been the first to apply that very carefully to the scriptures that Christianity had inherited from uh, from the Jewish people, from the Hebrew scriptures. Now, so he, he, if I can yeah, interrupt, yeah, um, yep. some some acute listener who heard episode uh, fifty eight of the podcast when we talked to specifically about Philo's hermeneutics of scripture will be saying, "Hang on a minute, what about Philo? He was surely a predecessor for this sort of thing in Alexandria, T- applying reading the scriptures and looking deep into them and." looking for kind of philosophic harmonization of the whole thing. Indeed. Yeah, that that's a fair correction. I, in fact, from the Christian side, perhaps there's sometimes an overcorrection because uh, writers such as Eusebius seem to say things like, well, Philo was so good and such an important predecessor for Origen and others after him that in fact, he, he must have been a kind of Christian. Right. And the and the community that Philo was writing about, well, that that must have been a Christian monastic community and not a Jewish sect. So indeed, uh, Philo is a is a really important predecessor for lots and lot of lots of what what Origen is doing. But Origen seems, I think, to have had some greater facility with the Hebrew text than Philo himself did. By by the Hebrew text, you mean in Hebrew. In Hebrew, yeah. Uh-huh. So what Origen produces is uh, is a text called the Hexapla, the six-in-one uh, edition, where he takes the Hebrew text and then uh, several different Greek translations that were out there. So he takes the Septuagint, which had become the standard uh, Christian, in fact, in the Orthodox world, still is the standard Christian uh, translation of the Hebrew Bible. But he lays it alongside several other going translations in his time to provide a comparative uh, study so as to establish the most reliable reading. Extraordinary. So he does, in fact, way outdo Philo on the linguistic front, because Philo is just perfectly happy to accept the Septuagint as the, the Jewish scriptures. He, he seemingly never asks the, the real question that you would expect a Jew to ask, maybe based on later Jewish thought of like, but what about the the language of Adam? What about the the true Hebrew words mm. that were spoken by God? You know, he's like, ah, eh, Hebrew words doesn't matter. Greek is fine. Yeah, but, indeed. But origin origin goes back to the the Hebrew. That's extraordinary. He does. There there's even some difficulty of interpretation in the descriptions of the hexapla, where it's not clear whether what he presented was uh, the Hebrew text in Hebrew letters or a transliteration in the Greek alphabet, huh. uh, just because of some of the terminology that Eusebius uses to describe what what was there in the text. But he's doing this very careful textual critical work. So that's, that's one um, big area in which uh, 
Origen is exemplary. And uh, in fact, Origen is remembered for this all the way into the early modern period. Uh, Erasmus of Rotterdam, who's the, who's the first great modern uh, textual critic of the, of the New Testament, takes Origen as, uh, as a great example, as his hero, and in fact is one of the strident advocates for the case of Origen's uh, faithful Christianity, uh, which, as we'll probably talk about later, is a controversial matter indeed. Indeed, and uh, this will certainly reemerge when when the podcast gets to the Reformation and rediscovering origin in all different contexts. Yes, so you know, you'll pick up Erasmus later, of course, but I think origin is important to him doctrinally in some ways. But it always seems to me that or- origin is just as important to him because they are both these careful textual critics. Wow. Uh, Erasmus recognizes him as a colleague. Uh, and and someone to to aspire to. So there's that work. Uh, a second category of work is uh, Origen's uh, scriptural commentaries, and he offers some of these as uh, written commentaries for scholars, others as sermons. But an enormous, a vast uh, amount of scriptural commentaries, um, all too few of which survive uh, into our own time. So there are some of those things that are readable but most of them are fragmentary in various ways. And then a third category are his, what you might call his, uh, uh, his explicitly philosophical systematic works, um, of which there are two really biggies. Uh, one that he composed while he was still in Alexandria, uh, which is, it bears the, the Greek title periachon, uh, in Latin, uh, de principiis, um, in English, on first principles. Uh, we only have it in uh, a later and somewhat compromised Latin translation. By the time it's getting translated into Latin by Rufinus, Origen is already, um, his, his reputation is already at stake. And so there's good reason to believe that Rufinus is cutting and pasting and doing some trimming and tucking here and there. Right. Um, the other great, uh, more systematic work that we have uh, from Origen, uh, we still have in its in its Greek form, and it's the one that he was composing in when he was in Caesarea in Palestine. For some reason, not exactly clear why, he took it on himself to write a massive work of response to a pagan Platonist named Celsus who had written a piece with the title On the True Logos, right? The Logos Aletheis, uh, which was an excoriation of Christianity. Hmm. Generations before Origen. So this was not a, a, a current happening sort of um, controversy. But for some reason, Origen took it on himself to write this massive uh, response, which is called Against Celsus. And... Celsus's own work is, uh, it doesn't survive to us. What we have of it is what Origen quotes, which is a, a significant amount, in the process of taking him to task and saying, no, Celsus, you're all wrong about Christianity. Uh, and in fact, our Christianity is superior to your particular form of Platonist philosophy. So I'd like to return to that work because there's a lot of um, interesting de- debates around different types of esotericism that arise. So Celsus is, broadly speaking, a kind of 
what I would call a Platonist, elitist, esoteric thinker. So there, mm. there is a true wisdom hidden within things like oracles and, and of course, transmitted by the great chain of wisdom of Hellenic philosophy and the, um, the wisdom of the barbarian sages like the Egyptians and the Chaldeans and all that sort of thing. But it's not for everyone. It's, it's for mm. a, an educated elite of Platonists who have this sort of incredible social capital of Hellenic paideia. And Origen is saying, ah, no, there is a uh, secret wisdom, but it's in principle available to everyone through the Christian revelation. Yes. Let's yes. come back to that. Let's come back okay. to that. Um, what else do we need to cover about his writings before we move on? So we've talked about the Hexapla and the textural critical work. We've talked about his massive but only fragmentarily surviving biblical commentaries. And we've talked about these more systematic works. Yeah. Didn't he write sort of homilies as well or, or sermons or something on those lines? No? Uh, well, there, there are – a lot of his homilies are um, scriptural interpretations. And then there are some that are – uh, more thematically focused. So, for instance, his exhortation to martyrdom, to return to the theme we were talking about before, yeah. and his work on prayer, <clears throat> those still return very often to scriptural interpretation, scripturally exegesis. They just have a sort of hook that that sets them off in the first place. Right. So that's his writings. Um, how does his life end, just for completeness of his biography, before we get mm. back into his ideas? He, he, does he live out his life in Caesarea? He does. So he is ordained a priest there, and he does live out his life there. The possibility of martyrdom uh, comes up again in the persecution of Decius, uh, the Roman emperor Decius. Origen uh, was captured in that persecution and was, uh, by all accounts, brutally tortured, but uh, was not killed. And Eusebius even makes a suggestion that the local authority didn't want to make him a martyr, so they tortured him, but didn't take his life. And apparently he died some years, three or four years after, uh, from the the result of his, of his torture injuries, but not uh, directly in the act of those. Right. So they weren't going to give him the satisfaction of becoming a martyr and give his congregation the rallying point of a, of a dead origin to rally right. around. Which shows the Romans were learning. They were learning what these Christians were all about. That If you kill them, it just makes them stronger in some ways. Indeed. Now, I should say, uh, I've, I've leaned heavily so far on Eusebius's account of origin in book six of his ecclesiastical history. There's another, even more contemporary account of origin that's really important which is the address of thanksgiving by uh, someone who goes on to be called Gregory the Wonderworker, Gregory Thaumaturgos. And uh, the remarkable thing about this, it is, according to, to the scholar Joseph Trigg, the only surviving example of a genre known as a logos syntacticos, uh, a farewell speech, seems to be the only surviving element, if Trigg is correct, uh, and I have no reason to, to be suspicious of him, from that whole period of antiquity. And furthermore, it seems to be one of only a couple of intimate accounts by an ancient philosophical student of his teacher's life, the other one being Porphyry's life of Plotinus. And in this uh, address, so 
Gregory came from Pontus in uh, Asia Minor and found himself in Palestine not looking for a Christian teacher. He was a law student and as a Greek-speaking law student in the Roman Empire, went to uh, Beritus, which is modern Beirut, uh, which was a great place to study Latin, or as he calls it, the Roman language. Um, And then also to continue to to, um, increase his studies of philosophy and other uh, lettered subjects. But while he was there, Beritus was very close to Caesarea, and he fell into the circle of uh, origin. And for at least five years, uh, Gregory was Origen's student there. And he gives us an elaborate account of Origen's character as a teacher and also of his entire pedagogy, uh, his whole approach uh, to teaching and learning, the curriculum that he, that he uh, offered, and the goals of it. So we have this very intimate account. Uh, Eusebius is writing a couple of generations later, and Eusebius is really happy to let us know that he has a lot of Origen's library in front of him, right? He's sort of the the literary successor of Origen that way, or literary executor. But from Gregory, we have what seems to be a firsthand account of uh, the man as he lived and the ways in which he went about his teaching. And what can you say about that account? Does it fly in the face of Eusebius's account, or are they roughly harmonious, first of all? Both Eusebius and Gregory are big fans of Origen, <laughs> so they both sing his praises. Uh, in Eusebius, we tend to get, I think because he didn't know him, we get a lot of the standard kind of hagiographic things about what a, a remarkable exemplar of orthodoxy he was, and how brilliant he was, and, and how consistent he was in his philosophy. In Gregory, we get all those same kinds of things, but we also talk. We also get talk about how very intentional and intimate his practice of friendship was. Mm. That he was uh, extremely devoted to his students. That he encouraged them with his friendship, even as he was confounding them with his early protreptic stages of teaching. Uh, so that he drew them along in kind of a Socratic way, right? The way that Socrates um, loves to trip people up, but then if they're the right kind of character, he encourages them at the same time and says, come on, friend, you're, you're teaching me something too. Origen seems to have been this kind of a character. Uh, and that comes through really strongly in, in Gregory's address. So we're very lucky to have this document. I think we may have a picture now of Origen the Man mm-hmm. in the in the rough context, a brilliant Christian philosopher from the city that was one of the big hotbeds of brilliant Christian philosophy in his time. He moved to another city, but still kept the fire going. Um, incredibly devoted, incredibly studious, hardworking philologist, as well as student of scripture, like just diving into it in this seemingly he's memorized enormous swathes of scripture um and he gets persecuted survives it but dies pretty horribly although i suppose for him is maybe the best possible death suffering in the in the path of the lord and when he dies seemingly and thereafter eusebius who's who's one of the the great early chroniclers of the church gives him the absolute stamp of approval he is a great christian thinker we love him yes now this changes does it not it does indeed so i wonder if you can run through 
the problems that arise for Origen in the developing consensus on what an Orthodox stroke Catholic Christianity might look like in the third century and beyond. Yes. For those who are coming after Origen, there are a few sources of trouble, and I'll outline a few of them anyway. One, one of the earliest objections to him seems to have come from some very earnest uh, teachers, again, back in Alexandria, who objected to Origen's hypothetical method, Origen's willingness to try out ideas to see where they would lead. Uh, the 20th century scholar of Origen, Henri Cruzel, uh, I think calls this his research theology. Uh, <laughs> that he, he wasn't committed to being dogmatic for the sake of dogmatism. Right. Uh, which I think is consistent, and I, uh, I hope we'll come back to this later. I think it's consistent with his interpretation of Plato's seventh letter in his in his uh, diatribe against Celsus, because he and Celsus both agree with the great Platonic esoteric tradition that says the highest things are not entirely graspable in uh, logical ways or speakable by. Um, by linguistic means. But this seems to have been, I would say, the first the first thing that people objected to after his life was over was that his, his teaching was um, continually open to interpretation. Right. So he's just not enough of a dogmatist for their life. Right. Right. Indeed. A second problem for him uh, comes, I would say, in the wake of... Um, the Christological controversies uh, that that were getting hammered out in the Council of Nicaea uh, in three in and around three twenty five, which is to say that after Nicaea and after the Nicene uh, Orthodox standard is solidified, which took a while, it didn't automatically happen in three twenty five, and then it was done. Looking back on Origen, he can seem like. He has a subordinationist Christology. He has a, a, a way of talking about Jesus Christ as somehow second to, in an inferior sense, uh, God the Father, the creator of all. Um, I would say it, if you're reading Origen from within his own intentions, that doesn't seem to be what he's aiming at. That's not what he's trying to do. And he's, he's certainly not um, trying to uphold the cause of Arianism, but he gets read after the fact as a proto-Arianist. Right. And that makes trouble for him. He has, in some of his more speculative, and I would say perhaps tentative moments, he does uh, have some thoughts about big picture matters, like the, the, the manner in which the creation of the world came about that sound uh, to later hearers rather Gnostic. So this idea that the first creation was a noetic creation, which was followed later by a material creation when the souls fall away from God and become physical. So 
there are things that he says on some of his more investigatory platonizing moments where he's he's trying to work out some things but perhaps not stating them dogmatically he says things about the overall creation of the world that don't seem to square very well with a kind of orthodox christianity right and he is wrapped up in controversies about uh, the apokatastasis um, which is a good New Testament word, which comes to mean a whole lot of things. Um, apokatastasis uh, literally means something like uh, the giant reset button on creation, right? right? <laughs> that, that everything is uh, ultimately restored, the final restoration of all things. So we find this in the book of Revelations, presumably, in the Apocalypse of John? No, it is... Uh, the, the language, I don't have the text in front of me here, but I believe it is in uh, Luke Acts okay. that this language is first introduced. So not in some of the more high-flying, apocalyptic, um, weird language in the New Testament, but in rather ordinary sort of gospel language, this term apokatastasis uh, emerges. And there are glimmerings of it in even older texts in the in the New Testament, the sorts of hopes that the Apostle Paul puts forward for uh, what God will be doing in God's unimaginable future of bringing all things back, right? Restoring all things in Christ, who is the center and head of all creation. Well, Origen um, is one of those who takes this seriously and says, well, what does that mean if everything is going to be restored? And he gets accused uh, again, there is a lot of context here, but he gets accused and then later denies it, but the accusation sticks of saying that even the devil, right, even the, the great enemy, the Satan, is going to be restored in the end. This is surely coming from such a strong belief in God's goodness that he has real problems with the idea that God's creation is somehow a failure, right? Indeed. So yep. he's like, God is so good, his, his goodness is infinite, that it can save everything, even the most debased yes. realities. Yes. Now, this apocatastasis thing is tricky because it gets used against some uh, thinkers in the Christian tradition who others want to find something, uh, you know, some bone to pick with them. But it doesn't get used against all even of those who affirm it. So Origen's uh, great successor a few generations later, uh, St. Gregory of Nyssa, proclaims apocatastasis even more unambiguously, I would say, than Origen does, and is never questioned for it. In fact, Gregory of Nyssa is himself made a personal standard of orthodoxy. The, the church council says, here's your guarantee of orthodoxy. Agree with Gregory. He's, the, he's your man. Um, and yet also propounds uh, a rather strong form of this doctrine of apocatastasis. So it, it turns out when there's heresy hunting going on, people bring this out as a selective weapon. Um, and it gets weaponized against origin. Now, apocatastasis, to make it more concrete, are we talking about a theory of reincarnation? Does this come into it? Because with Clement, whom we've talked about in the podcast, and who yes. was an Alexandrian who came before um, Origen, and I, as I gather, there's some Clementine influence on Origen, but 
we can't say that he's a follower of Clement per se. Is that right. A- it's hard to trace it uh, precisely, but clearly they're they're of the same ilk. So Clement has the sort of the souls of the dead in this kind of incredible cycle of birth after birth into higher and higher spiritual forms moving toward God infinitely. Mm-hmm. Which isn't your death followed by afterlife and or you know hell or purgatory standard mm-hmm. Christian uh, account. Is, is Origen saying something similar? Yeah, in fact, Origen has his own interesting terminology for this. So this, uh, a more standard Greek philosophical terminology for this idea is metempsychosis, right? That the soul transfers from one body to another. Origen's terminology is metensomatosis, Right, that it's going from one body to another, but it's not the soul that's the that's the focus of the word, uh, but the the soma, the body. Again, this puts origin on the suspicion map, but it's not always clear to me precisely how much weight he wants to give to it in his own overall picture of things. Right. Um, do you get any suspicion that this? might be because he doesn't want to just come out and say it. Because with um, mm. Philo, there's endless argumentation about whether Philo believes in reincarnation or not. And there's some works where he really, really seems to hint that he does. But he never comes out and really just says blatantly, this is how it works, we reincarnate, in the way that a Platonist would, like a Plotinus or something mm-hmm. like that. They just say, well, this is how it works. And so people have been led to think Philo thinks that is what happens, but he can't really come out and say it because the Jews of his time are going to take umbrage at that. So he has to kind of express it in a covert way. Do you think that's what's going on with Origen? I'm not sure. I'm sure it's relevant, but here's the picture that I have of Origen. His intellect, much of his intellectual architecture, right, the science of his day, the way of of understanding things, is that broader Greek uh, Platonist and other pre-Christian way of thinking. And he's also deeply steeped in the Hebrew Bible and the Christian scriptures. So he's trying to think about what creation and fall and redemption, which he knows uh, from the biblical uh, background, he's, he's trying to think about how to cast those in ways that make sense to the intellectual structure of his time, which he shares and that he's also writing to. So from from our standpoint, that looks like some, or we, we get suspicious that it looks like some kind of uh, sneaky synthesis is going on and he's really trying to mastermind something or hide something. I think it's possible just to see him as, in good faith, trying to think through the togetherness of these traditions that he inherits that he doesn't see as in, as two entirely separate traditions. They're just the way things are in his culture and in his upbringing. So I'm not sure if he's playing a cagey game there or if he's really just trying to think through with the intellectual materials that his cultural off, culture offers him how to make sense of uh, the biblical witness. Okay. Two little points I'd like to discuss in this context before we move on to the question of esotericism. One is the pre-existence of souls, which is a teaching that Origen had, is it not? Mm-hmm. This is something that um, the Cambridge Platonists will, will get in trouble for re-adopting from Origen. Mm. I think it's a good idea. Why does he think 
souls are pre-existent before they come into the body, and why is that a problem for the church? Mm-hmm. These are uh, these are not simple questions by any means. <laughs> um, the best sense of it that I have is that um, again the the idea that the souls must pre-exist has to do with his whole intellectual formation for how to think about an immortal soul. Uh, that it must, if it's truly immortal, it must have uh, a kind of longevity to it, a kind of uh, eternity, not not co-eternal with God, but certainly not just the sort of thing that gets cooked up when a human being happens to be born. Right? There has to be a kind of greater timeless dignity of the soul that that makes you who you are. So I think that's where where the pre-existence thing is coming from. And it fits into this general Platonizing way of thinking about um, reality as a procession from higher to lower, right? He, he gets this uh, wonderful story then that he can tell about how the noetic creation is first and then a material creation follows when the souls turn away from God, which sounds an awful lot like Plato's Phaedrus, right? With the, the fall of the soul into the body as it loses its wings. Why is this problematic for the church? Well, because it's imaginary, because it's, uh, its frame of reference is so very different from the account of creation that we get in the Hebrew scriptures. So Origen, I've tried to emphasize the way in which Origen's um, account of things is a good faith representation of his Christian faith and his cultural context, but not everybody in the church shares that cultural context in exactly the same way. Uh, So his highly educated Platonic uh, way of saying, well, can't you see it? Of course these things fit together in this way doesn't exactly fit with what all of the the preachers and bishops see when they read Genesis. Gotcha. And um, that little point of doctrine out of the way, let's return to apocatastasis. Yes. And is there anything more concrete he gives us about what the apocatastasis looks like? Is it a apocalyptic end times scenario, or is it more of like a process that's going on in creation all the time, maybe mediated via Christ, or neither? The simple answer is yes. <laughs> uh, I, I think there are elements of all of those things going on. Among Origen and other teachers on apocatastasis, uh, it's still debated now whether they primarily mean the restoration of souls or the restoration uh, truly of all things, including the material creation. Um, Depending on which way you read Origen, Gregory of Nyssa, and others, you can make arguments in either direction. Um, It seems to me that Origen is very much saying this is is what the whole creation needs. This is is the proper goal, uh, the proper return of all things uh, to the one, if I can use a Plotinian sort of language. Uh, But of course, it's mediated by Christ. Uh, But that's because this is also the cosmic Christ, right? This isn't just uh, a particular first century Palestinian Jew. This is uh, the Logos who is at the heart of all creation and therefore is the key to its restoration. 
Maybe that's a place to talk a little bit more about the book against Kelsus. Superb idea. So uh, Kelsus calls his book the true Logos, the Logos Aletheis, which sounds like a, a heavy allusion to what Plato says in the seventh letter at 342E, I believe it is, where uh, he begins the so-called uh, excursus on knowledge by saying there, there's a true logos that confounds anyone who tries to capture the highest knowledge in mere speech. And the way that Plato lays this out then is to say, you have to understand that there are different levels of reality. For anything that we talk about, there is first the name, second the logos or the account of it. It's often translated as the definition. Yeah. Third, there is an image. Fourth, there is the knowledge of the thing. And then fifth is the real the real reality itself, the thing itself. And the way Plato lays this out, we don't get confused about what we're talking about unless we confuse one of those levels with the others. So anytime that we mistake the mere name for the thing itself, we become terribly vulnerable to anybody who says, but that thing has a different name in another language. Or, but I have a different way of defining whatever it is that we're talking about, or a different image. Even our knowledge, even the fourth level, which is the closest to the thing itself, is not entirely coterminous with that thing. Now, Celsus has claimed that the Christian teaching is inadequate to the dignity of that Platonic teaching because of the what he calls the mean style of the Christian scriptures, right? How could anything written by these half illiterate people in backwoods Palestine um, and with no real good literate Greek education, how could that anything even hope to ascend this ladder toward the thing itself? Now, Origen has a tricky kind of disagreement with Celsus. Um, because he doesn't disagree with Celsus that something more than just the lowest level pedestrian understanding of things needs to be achieved. But as you were saying earlier, unlike the, um, the elitist esotericists uh, of whom Celsus is one, Origen's larger project seems to be to demonstrate there's actually a kind of superiority to texts like the biblical texts that have a broad appeal but allow assent to higher truths from within that, that breadth over against a philosophical wisdom that's dauntingly exclusive at the outset. So Origen explicitly addresses the true logos of, of the discourse on knowledge from the seventh letter. Celsus had uh, appealed to that, and I would say the very title of Celsus's book the true Logos, is, is itself a heavy allusion to Plato. Origen, in the, f in the beginning of Book 6 of Against Celsus, 
I think is trying, among other things, to show that he knows exactly what Kelsus is up to and knows the source as well as Kelsus does or better, because he in fact goes on and quotes portions of the second and sixth and seventh letters of Plato that Kelsus doesn't even even seem to have quoted himself. So it's as if he's saying, ha ha, I know it just as well as you do and maybe even better. Don't try playing the Plato card on me, son. Exactly. But Origen expands this uh, true logos in a highly creative way. He, he appropriates it for an explicitly Christian understanding of reality. So he takes these same five levels and he interprets the first, the name, as referring to the predecessors to Christ, culminating in John the Baptist, John the forerunner. He says that's the first level. The second, the Logos, he interprets as the historical Jesus, the the one who walked around in Palestine. The third level, the image, he interprets as the Christ who is in each of us, issuing from the Logos Christ. So he joins this to the ancient uh, Hebrew teaching from Genesis 1 about the image of God uh, that that human beings bear. So that third, the image, is the Christ in each of us. And the fourth level, knowledge, Origen interprets as Christ the wisdom that is within those who have become perfect. So unlike Celsus's exclusivistic condemnation of Christianity, Origen suggests that Plato's really sublime teaching is entirely intelligible within the frame of reference that Christian faith has provided. And what Plato has presented as a hierarchy of levels of knowledge, Origen presents as the progressive revelation of Christ. Wow. And he maps it onto sacred history. So he's doing so exactly. many things there. He's yes. mapping onto sacred history and also onto ontology, onto uh, realities, like immaterial realities. Yes. The, this Platonic passage and bringing other Platonic passages to bear on it, and bringing Scripture to bear on it. Yes. And he needs to do all of that because, again, Celsus's accusation has been, what do these pathetic Christians possibly think they're doing? Because they just have this historical story and these uh, Hebrew and um, Semitic-sounding Greek texts of the New Testament. And so Origen has to say, no, I can play that Plato card as well as you can, and I can show you how the Platonic structure that we share is intelligible, in fact, opens up the great story that the scripture has provided. So he's comfortable making it temporal, which is a huge move away from any of the philosophic Mm. Platonists. He's like, no, 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 it is temporal. Jesus really lived at a specific time in a specific place, and that's part of the story of the cosmic um, reality, which is a very yes. bold move from a, from a yeah, like a, a mainstream philosophic Platonist perspective. But again, there, the, the representation of the true Logos in the seventh letter does origin a favor, or he, he puts it to good use, because in that presentation, Plato was saying, well, those lowest levels are entry points, right? To learn the name of something is really important, but it's only a starting point if you really want to get to a true understanding of it. So the name is that long historic, uh, the story of all the predecessors of Jesus. It's important. It's a, it's an entry point, but it's not 
it's not the destination, right? And then the historic Jesus is the second level. Things get interesting when you start to talk about the image, right, which is the Christ within each one of us. So he does allow that same kind of idea of a progression, and the lower levels allow him to accommodate that historical reality and put it in its place. But that reminds me, you never told us what in Oregon's exegesis the uh, the final level is, the thing itself. Mm. Does he get to that, or does he leave that in ineffable sort of indeterminacy? You know, in the seventh letter, Plato doesn't say very much about the fifth either. No. He says, there are these four levels, we run up and down them, and the fifth, when, when it occurs to us, all of a sudden, like a spark uh, being kindled, uh, when you know it, then you know it. And Origen seems to follow something very much like that and say, well, the fifth is God's own self. Boom. Hmm. And in fact, in his, um, in his other work on prayer, Origen describes the way in which truly being caught up into the dynamics of prayer um, allows one to become united to God. Ultimately, and he says this in highly Platonic language, the practice of prayer does away with the distinction between the one praying and God. So uh, I could read a passage here from that piece on prayer, which I think speaks to your question about what, what is the fifth level for origin. He says, the eyes of the mind are lifted up from their preoccupation with earthly things and from their being filled with the impressions of material things. And they are so exalted that they peer beyond the created order. You hear that language, it sounds like the Phaedrus again, right? Going, going beyond the, the, the level of material and created things. They peer beyond the created order and arrive at the sheer contemplation of God and at conversing with him reverently and suitably as he listens. For then they partake of some divine and intelligible radiance, and the soul is lifted up, and following the spirit is separated from the body. Not only does it follow the spirit, it even comes to be in him. Powerful stuff. So reminiscent of Plotinus in some ways, and so utterly different from Plotinus in other ways. There's, there's an interesting connection there that we haven't talked about yet, I think, which is that Origen's teacher back in Alexandria was a man named Ammonia Sakas, who happens also to have been Plotinus's teacher. Dun, 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 you mean. <laughs> this brings us to the question, which I guess there's no avoiding, of the two origins. So wait, do I get to make that sound now? Dun dun dun! Please do, please do. Yes. Um, let me just run this down as I understand it, and, and I'll let please. you comment on it. The, the The idea here is we know from Porphyry's account of Plotinus's life that among the students of Ammonius Saccas was, of course, Plotinus. Also, a few other guys who get named, and one of them is called Origen, Origenes, and he wrote a few books, and then he sort of drops off. Porphyry's radar, for the most part. If we had Porphyry's against the Christians, maybe this would be a different story, but we don't. Now, then we have this historical origin, whom we know wrote, among other things, Platonizing or Platonistic works of philosophy, along with his Christian writings. This has led some German scholar to posit that there are actually two origins. One is origin the Platonist, and one is origin the Christian. They're just not the same person. 
there must have been another Ammonius that Origen the Christian studied with, who is presumably a Christian. Ammonius Saccas, of course, can't have been a Christian because he was the teacher of Plotinus, and Plotinus isn't a Christian. So you have a, a kind of scholarly construction of two Origens and two Ammoniuses. However, we don't have a single scrap of evidence from the ancient material that says there are two origins. One is the Christian, one is the pagan. Um, there are prob slight problems with dating them both as one person, but they're not really insurmountable problems. There is the problem that how can this guy Origen, who studied with Plotinus under this guy Ammonius, have gone on to be a Christian, which is a problem in the eyes of some scholars, but in other mm. scholars' eyes, it's not a problem at all. Go. Yes, and you mentioned you mentioned that we don't have preserved whole porphyries against the Christians, but we do have portions of it, uh, including some that are quoted by Eusebius in the ecclesiastical history, in which it seems that part of porphyry's representation, his inveighing against Origen, against the Christians, includes inveighing against Origen for having forsaken his Alexandrian education. Right, he represents. He sets up a kind of chiasm between Ammoniasakas and Origen. He says Ammoniasakas started as a Christian, but then he became enlightened. Origen had a good Hellenist, Hellenic education, but then he got all Christian on us. And Eusebius says, well, this is nonsense. Ammoniasakas continued being as brilliant as he ever was and continued living the Christian way of life. And Origen was, well, the wonderful person that Eusebius says Origen was uh, altogether. So that is to say that the pieces of that really important text, that we don't have the whole thing anymore, some of the pieces that survive do suggest that Porphyry does think he's talking about one Ammonius and one Origen, because he's trying to tell a complicated story about their evolution or devolution. Right. Now, to get to the modern scholarly constructions and, if I could say, multiplying of entities uh, that goes on in saying there must be two Ammoniuses, there must be two origins. Um, I want to say that it betrays a kind of modern scholarly skepticism that says you can't be a serious Platonist and also be a Christian. You just can't you can't be both of those things. And so if there's an origin who's a serious Platonic scholar and a Christian, well, they must be talking about two of them. But if you read Origen's works, uh, you encounter both of those descriptions in the same person. So I think it's far more, well, it's at least not unreasonable to suppose that when they're talking about Origen, they're talking about one Origen. Right. You'd think that people never read Philo. Because no one, Indeed. no one ever approaches Philo and says there must be two Philos because this guy can't have been both a Jew and this, you know, deeply philosophical, um, middle Platonist, stoicizing writer. It's impossible. You can't be both things. It's like, well, Philo just blatantly is both things, and as far as he's concerned, it's one thing, and there's no problem. So why not just take that lesson? They're even from mm. the same city, Alexandria, which is a milieu notorious for people mixing and matching and blending and just it's a huge hotbed of crazy different thought worlds all mixing together it sort of beggars belief that this is becomes assumed and for people who aren't specialists i should say that if you look at literature on the history of platonism let's say 
um, the two origins hypothesis will be taken for granted. You'll see the origin mm. the Christian versus origin the Platonist all the time. I don't know if this is true from the Christian side. People scholarship of early Christianity do they do they make the same sort of um, dichotomy? Uh, depending on what they're reading, right? If they're if they're trying to base themselves on sort of the modern scholarly consensus, then they'll wrestle with that question. Uh, but the let's say the more traditional readings within the Christian tradition will just assume one origin as as the old tradition does. Okay, so it's maybe it's a problem coming from the side of history of philosophy and uh, mm. even a, a kind of <clears throat> classics that yearns for purity and sees the 5th mm. century Athens as the true heart of classical um, civilization and anything that diverges from that is is going down a path of decadence and therefore if you're a philosopher like Plato, you can't be a Christian like barbaric Middle Ages sort of people. So mm. to be two, two different people, one doing each thing, something on those lines. Which would suggest that the two origins hypothesis really is a creature of 19th century anxieties, not of a, a longer history. Much as, for instance, uh, you find all sorts of modern scholarly consensus in the history of philosophy, that there must be three great periods in Plato's works that correspond to things that we can map onto Plato's biography, um, which, if you read the dialogues itself, is entirely unnecessary. I, t I tend to agree about that as well. Um, although I must say, in the um, in the podcast, I've made light use of the the first, you know, the early, middle, and late period mm. periodization, just for non-essential purposes. But it's all hypothetical, and it, it's all overly tidy. And perhaps to be sure, yeah, overly post-Kantian in its approach to what philosophy is and what it was at the time. Well, at the time, Plato was inventing it, <laughs> so Indeed. he should be the one who decides, not us. Thank you for that brief uh, excursion into the question of the two origins, because it would not do to introduce origin without without talking about it. And it's good to get at least one Unitarian on record, someone who says this this whole two origins thing is just silly. I, I happen to be of that school as well. Um, but we still have not addressed the issue of origins esotericism, which we won't be able to do justice to in a, in a short mm. time, but I'd like to at least touch on the issue. There's two points here, I think, which I'd love for you to expand on. One is something we've hardly touched on, but is very relevant to the seventh letter, which is in late antiquity, we have a rise in thinkers who actually embrace the idea of ineffability. Mm. Whatever Plato might have thought about it, and whatever the author of the seventh letter conceived of this as being, by the third century, there are people who, just, who simply say, there are realities which cannot be put into words. Human language, human thought falls short of them. And it seems like Origen is a great step on this path toward a kind of strong transcendence, a strong, an idea of, of a, a strongly ineffable reality or aspect of reality. So can you say anything more about that? Can you kind of round out that picture? Well, Origen's way of talking about scripture, how it works, how, how it is presented and how it is to be read, falls within that bigger picture that you're describing of the absolute ineffability of the highest. So we have some ultimately inexpressible reality that we're in touch with or that has touched us. And then we have 
all of these accounts, some of them philosophical, some of them scriptural, that put words to our experiences. So there's a sort of a way down. So Origen assumes that if there's that way down, then there must be a way back up as well. And so the texts that we have in front of us, if interpreted correctly, right, if they're interpreted uh, not only correctly but wisely, right, if they're interpreted with the right kind of imaginativity, they can lead us to see things which say more than what's in the surface of the text and may even be able to hint us toward things that even the interpreter can't say as uh, as the ultimate uh, reality. So you're aiming for the ineffable. The scripture is aiming aiming at the ineffable. Yes. And so the, the idea that allegoricis, right, allegorical reading of the text, whether it's a philosophical text or a traditional Hellenic text or a biblical text, is trying to unlock a wisdom that was already buried in it from the experience of the one who wrote it, trying to get closer to articulating what that is, but always also seeing that there is more than we can say, even in the best allegorical unfolding of things. Did he ever get in trouble for this stuff? Because this is, I mean, so in Gregory of Nyssa, for example, this um, Mm. this apophatic approach to to sayability, this, you know, extreme awareness that, especially when dealing with God, you cannot put stuff into words fundamentally, Mm -hmm. um, has become... It's reached, say, it's full flowering in Gregory of Nyssa and someone like that. Mm-hmm. It's, it's standard, even though it's mind-bending and sort of mm-hmm. very, very difficult. It's, it's, it's become standard doctrine. In origin, is this in, in origin's time, let's say, in, in the Christian milieu, insofar as we know about it, is this standard already? Or is this something he's sort of innovating with? Is this something that's a new, a new dimension to Christian writing? As far as we know, because obviously most of the Christian writing from origin's time is lost to us. Yeah. Well, as you have said, uh, he relies heavily on the kind of allegoricist that he finds already in Philo. Uh, so he has he has predecessors for this. But Origen is, is really the one who makes it a big thing for Christians to engage in this kind of allegorical interpretation of the, of the, the Hebrew and Christian scriptures, uh, which makes him a great fountainhead and also for anyone who wants to be suspicious of that, the great villain who has started us off on this terrible pathway. So there's a little hint as to um, the role that the ineffable plays in Origen's writing. Yeah, there's a, there's a hint of this, your language of esoteric. Uh, there's a hint of it in a little gem of a text. There's a lot of reference to Origen's letters. For instance, Eusebius is always saying, well, in this letter he says this, and in that letter he says this. But very few of those letters actually survive. Um, we don't have very many of them. One of them that we have is the letter of origin to Gregory. It seems like, and there are arguments about exactly if it's genuine and who the addressee is, but it looks like it's a letter from origin to Gregory, who became Gregory the Wonderworker, who was that student of his in Caesarea. Yeah. And in, in just three or four pages, origin lays out his understanding of how biblical interpretation is to be done and what its goals are. And this is one of the earlier texts, I think, in which we find what later becomes a commonplace in Augustine, uh, 
the image of the Israelites fleeing from Egypt, taking with them the spoils of the Egyptians, right? Taking with them the treasures, right? The Egyptians have just lost every, every household has lost a firstborn son. And they're in the, in the story, in the Exodus, they're pushing the Israelites out saying, please go get out of our, of our country. Your, your, your God is bringing disaster to us. And along the way, they shove all kinds of riches on them. And the Hebrew people were encouraged by God also to take all kinds of uh, riches, which then in the narrative of Exodus, they go out into the desert. And when Moses gives them the instructions for how to construct the tabernacle, the tent of meeting between the people and God, they melt down all of these metallic things that they brought from Egypt and they turn them into the adornments of the tabernacle and the other materials that they took as well. Well, Augustine makes this a standard thing a couple of hundred years after Origen to say this is an image for in the interpretation of scripture and of philosophy taking the best that the world has to offer and converting it to its right use. Right? It's not just the idea of capitalizing on it. It's restoring it to what it was creationally meant to be. Well, Origen has a much earlier example of this, and it's in this uh, letter that he writes to Gregory. But he has this turn of phrase um, that speaks to your question about esotericism. So at the end of part two of this short letter, he says, from the clothing of the Egyptians would have come what needed the work of embroiderers, as scripture calls them, since the embroiderers stitched together one kind of fabric to another with the wisdom of God, so that there might be the veils and the hangings without and within. So the image of the veil, the image of the, the curtain that separates you, this is, which, which mm -hmm. actually goes back to mystical imagery, mystic imagery, yes. mystery cults, as representing the darkness of God or, or the, the separation between God and the aspirant, the one who wants yes. to see God. And he insists here that since it was described in Exodus as uh, an embroidered cloth, that means that it's stitched together with multiple layers and there's an inside and an outside to it. And he says both of those are necessary. So the exoteric and the esoteric complement each other and are both necessary yes. sides to religion. Which, which seems to prefigure, well, as you, as you mentioned, Augustine, so obviously it, pre, it, it becomes mainstream in, in Western Christianity as well, because basically everything Augustine says becomes mainstream, or at, yeah. at least officially so. But it, it seems to me that this, is, this becomes a major theme in esoteric Abrahamic faiths throughout the first millennium and beyond. They're, Indeed. You need the esoteric and the exoteric. This is still the case in the in the Islamic world, especially in the Jafri world. The, the idea is, mm. in most cases, <laughs> you don't dispense with the exoteric religion just because you've attained to the the esoteric true meaning of it. You have to keep it, mm -hmm. which again is very different from the Platonists, who seem, for example, to have not really been too bothered about the civic cult of the cities they lived in, the the normal traditional cult of the gods. They were like, meh, we don't really have to worry about that. We're Platonist philosophers. Right. Mm. But in the Abrahamic tradition, it's like, no, no, you still have to worry about that stuff. But there's a deeper level. Yeah, Origen 
toward the end of his life, again, by the account we get from Eusebius, was preaching more and more frequently in the church, hmm. which suggests being gathered not less, but more often with Christians of all levels of intellect and all levels of understanding for the the celebration of the rites and for the the opening of scripture. Well, on that note of the end of Origen's life, I think we're going to have to call it a day, not because the fascination of the subject has run up, but simply because we've been talking for a good hour and a half, I think. <laughs> we have. Aaron Repman, thank you so much for... Um, for speaking with us. It's been an absolute pleasure and hugely educational for me. And uh, until next time, stay esoteric. <laughs> <laughs>